0: Uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, good morning, church. Uh, I tell you, it is with great joy that I take to the pulpit this morning as we begin our, our new series in John. We, uh, let me tell you why. In 2011, I was a youth pastor at a church in North Baton Rouge, and we had just graduated probably 10 to 12 seniors, uh, and it was a church body similar to the size of ours. So you can imagine when 10 to 12 seniors graduate, and in this case, all of them were moving all over. We had some. We had one go to Baylor, one go up to Northwestern, one go to Louisiana College. It's just. Our students had like this mass exodus, and we were left with three kids, two of which were new believers. They hadn't been believers longer than maybe a few months. So as a youth pastor, I'm thinking, okay, where do I go from here? And so I started with the basics. That was the first time actually that I taught our Bible study methods class that we teach here. And over the course of that 10-week class, our group grew organically because the the young men that we had in our church uh, were going and saying, hey, inviting their friends, like, hey, you got to come check this out, the stuff that we're learning about how to study Scripture. And so by the time we finished, we had somewhere around 12 to 15 young people who would commit their Monday nights to coming, studying the Word of God with their friends, a guy in a tie, and his new wife. And that's what we were. Uh, We were a youth group, but everybody called it Bible study. And I'm okay with that. And so after we concluded our our Bible study methods course, we as a group decided we're going to commit to going through the Gospel of John verse by verse. That was in late 2011. In 2014, we concluded our study. Now understand, this went against everything that I had ever been taught about student ministry. Because what I had been taught was you've got to build relationships, so, which is a good thing. So you've got to fill your calendar with events. You've got to plan, you know, back-to-school blasts and fifth quarters. And a lot of the things that we grew up with when we were in the church— I was also taught that to begin a youth worship service, you, you get up and you do a fun activity. Uh, maybe make, make them laugh and just get them engaged. And then you have maybe a youth worship band Well, they'll lead worship for about 15, 20 minutes. And then is the time of teaching. And you keep that to about 10 to 15 minutes tops because young people can't sit and focus longer than that. And what I came to realize was that students are far capable. These young people were starving for the Word of God. And they were capable of sitting down for longer than 15 minutes and focusing. And so, I'm grateful for that. And I say that to you because we're getting ready to go through John verse by verse for the next two years, roundabout. I've condensed it a little bit, but... Even this week, I was trying to get through verse 5, and if you, were, if you were following along with us, I apologize. You're a little bit ahead of me because I just couldn't get through the intro and past verse 3 in the time that would get us out of here to go, um, if you wanted to go to the GED, I'll announce that later. But, you know, there's just things we need to do today. We would have been in here too long. So, I say that because I saw the Word of God transform people's lives. I saw young people Who changed the culture of a church as they learned who their Christ was and then they committed their lives in obedience to his commands and loving God with everything they had and then loving their neighbors as themselves? I saw decisions that were were made, difficult ones, were made with fear and with boldness at the same time. I saw a new life, spiritual life given followed by baptism in a very cold, cold river. Those were sweet moments. And that is the anticipation with which I'm approaching the Word this morning because I'm expecting sweet moments to come within our body as we go through this together. My prayer as we commit to going through this Book is that we fall in love with Christ. And, like, this is the thing. Like, I was talking to Adam a little bit earlier this week. If you get excited about church history and about theological doctrine, you're going to get some of that in John's gospel because it's doctrine, the church history, all that stuff is grounded in scripture. But I don't want you to look for that. Take it as it comes, but I want you to see Christ. Because that's why John wrote his gospel. He was trying to present the Christ that he had come to know. So my prayer is that we see him, and that we fall in love with him, and that as a result of that, and we see who he is, our lives are transformed into the image of him, so that we may reflect him to our neighbors and to the ends of the world. And that's, what, that's where we are in John. I hope you pursue transformation. So, I mean, I said two years and I even saw some eyes like, whoa, okay, be patient. Be patient. Be patient with yourself and be patient with the scriptures. Because what we're doing is we're seeking transformation, we aren't seeking to complete a task and say, oh, so for Community Church has now gone through this book, this book, and this book. That doesn't mean anything unless transformation comes from that. And so that's where we are. And so I want to cast that vision for you. Look for Christ and fall in love with Him. Since this is the beginning of the series, there are some things you need to know that will help you. Now, if you're one of those like, okay, now I'm going to check out because now He's going on all this introductory stuff and I'm going to wait until He gets back into the Word... I would encourage you to listen right here because this is very beneficial for you to understand the context from which the author is coming and the purpose of his book. I want you to know John. There's overwhelming evidence that he is the author supported by the fact that every one of your Bibles, his name is in there attributed to the authorship. It's the Gospel of John. Historically, no one really contends against this. Between the early church fathers, pagan historians, modern day scholars, all agree that he wrote this gospel. Internal evidence is there as well. The author mentions at the end of chapter 21 the disciple whom Jesus loved, and then goes on to say that this disciple is the one who is recording these things. He never names himself, but he is the author of this gospel. He was the younger brother of James. So we know that John was Jewish. So he's going to be familiar with Jewish attitudes, opinions, and customs. Not only was he Jew, but he was also a Palestinian Jew. So he was very familiar with this area in Jerusalem. And he had a very uh, keen knowledge of the temple itself. He's actually, he actually names like three locations that aren't mentioned in any of the other Gospels. Let me give you an example of what this would be like. For those of you who have grown up in Sulphur for most of your life, it'd be like you telling me to meet you at the old Kroger parking lot. Okay, I'm not from here. And had somebody not already told me what the old Kroger parking lot was, I would have no idea what you're talking about. I wouldn't know that you're talking about the parking lot of Life Church. I was thinking about this because Josh would know It'd be like me telling you to go to Central and meet me at the old Canes. He has a keen knowledge of this location. And so that comes out in his writing. We also know that John was an apostle of Jesus. As an apostle, John was an eyewitness to the works of Christ. So he's going to give some very descriptive information as he's writing this and recording the events that he does. Also, as an apostle, he was intimately acquainted with the thoughts and feelings that that group had. And that's going to play out a little bit this morning in the opening lines of his gospel. It affected his writing. He knew what they went through, their thoughts and their emotions. John was the son of Zebedee. And we know Zebedee was a prosperous fisherman because he owned his own boat and he had hired servants that worked for him. His mother was Salome. We'll see her come into play later on. She contributed financially to Jesus' ministry, and it's possible that she was the sister of Mary, making John and Jesus possible first cousins, family. Prior to following Jesus, though, John was a disciple of John the Baptist. He he became one of Jesus' inner circle. And as previously mentioned, he refers to himself only in this gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church until he was eventually banished to the island of Patmos, where he received and recorded the revelation of God. When he wrote his gospel, he was in Ephesus. And so his audience comprises of both Jew and Gentile. And you're going to see that come into play this morning in a magnificent way. He chooses his words accordingly. And lastly, he he explicitly states his purpose. You know, just like all the other Gospels, those authors had a primary focus. And it was months ago now, Trent did a very good job of walking us through each Gospel purpose. But we've slept since then. So I'm going to remind you, Matthew, he wants you to behold the king, that Jesus is the promised Davidic Messianic king. When you go to Mark, he wants you to see the suffering servant prophet. Luke records everything he does in great detail to show the humanity of Jesus Christ. And then John And if you're taking notes, if you're writing, I would encourage you to write this down. If you're taking mental notes, remember this, because I'm going to repeat this over and over and over for the next two years. John's purpose, we read it this morning in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He makes it explicit. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John says Jesus did a lot of other things that I'm not recording here. I'm recording the things that I'm writing because so that first you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And two, by believing that, you will have life in his name. It is a two-part purpose. The first is apologetic. And apologetic does not mean he's apologizing for anything. Apologetics is where he's defending truth. He is writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. So he writes the the events and the things that, that Jesus says in order to show us that. And he goes into great detail because the second part of his purpose is evangelistic. He's telling us the good news. And so he's defending the deity of Christ, and then he comes and says, I'm going into great te- detail about this, to great lengths to prove this so that you may believe it and have eternal life. That's John's heart you got to understand, John followed this guy for three years, trying to figure out who this man is. The next 40 to 50 years, leading up to the time where he'll write this, he's reflecting, while he's serving and being obedient, he's reflecting on who he's come to know Christ to be. And so when he writes this, he wants his audience not to have to go through that struggle. He wants us to see who Christ is. He is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. And his case is very comprehensive. I have a slight man crush on this guy. Because he takes something and uses very simple language to communicate profound truth. So he records those things intentionally that he does so that we wouldn't misunderstand the identity of Christ. No offense to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because we need their Gospels to understand the complexity of the identity of Christ. But what John records, he's saying, look, Jesus wasn't just a king ruling over the world. And he isn't just a suffering servant who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross and he isn't just a man but he is God and that's why John writes what he does so church look for him because he's made himself known John will record what Jesus did what Jesus said and then how people responded to that And so as we go through this journey, we're going to see what Jesus did, hear what Jesus said, and then we're going to be faced with that same question, what are you going to do with that Christ? How do you respond to that Christ? I'm looking forward to it. So without further ado, let's get in to the word. We're going to be in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 this morning. I've titled this The Eternal Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. As we get into this first chapter, the first 18 verses are going to provide the foundation for the rest of this gospel. It's like his introduction or his prologue, and so he kind of summarizes what the rest of this is going to be about, and right from the start, we get introduced to the beauty of this book. He uses the simplest of vocabulary. I mean, look at those words. In the beginning was the word. A third grader could understand those words, but the meaning behind them are infinitely astounding. When comparing this gospel to the other three, this beginning might stand out to you. Remember Matthew wanted to show Jesus as the promised Davidic king? So how does he start off his gospel? He starts off with a genealogy, tracing the line all the way back, so you would see that he was in the bloodline of the king. Mark, on the other hand, is presenting him as the servant. He doesn't start with a genealogy, does he? Genealogy is irrelevant for a servant, it doesn't matter. Go to John, I mean, go to Luke, like Matthew. He starts off with the genealogy, but he's more focused on the humanity of Christ. And so his genealogy reflects that. Then we get to John, and what do we see? Now, some might say, well, he's kind of like Mark. He doesn't really start off with a genealogy. In a sense, this is a genealogy. But see, John is opening up heaven and saying, okay, you've got to think about the eternality of Christ So I've got to go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. He does not say in the beginning the Word was created or in the beginning the Word became. He intentionally uses a Greek word, amy, which describes a continuing action from the past. In other words, When things began, when the world and everything was set in motion, the Word already was. And he uses that phrase in the beginning. Does that remind you of another book in the Bible? It is not coincidental that when this Palestinian Jew sat down To try to think about how am I going to communicate to people the eternality of Christ, that He is God in the flesh, that this Palestinian Jew goes all the way back to Genesis 1 1. Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, God created. John 1 1, in the beginning, the Word was. Past tense. there's something else that John does that is incredible when you get a little bit deeper into it. You notice he refers to Jesus as the Word. Now, as a little spoiler, we're going to get there in a couple weeks, but we know that he's referring to Jesus here for a few reasons. First off in in verse 2, as we'll see, he repeats one of his statements from verse 1, but then he personifies the Word. He says, he. So we at least know it was a person, the translators have also helped us in this area. They capitalize Word for us. So it indicates that it's some formal name or title. In John 1.14, we see, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John goes on to talk about John the Baptist, and then runs with this narrative. And we, we see it's all about Christ. And of course, we already know the purpose of John, right? I'm writing these things so you may believe that he is the Son of God, and by believing that, you would have eternal life. It is all about Christ. Now, the question is not really, okay, is that Christ? The question is, why does he call him that? I mean, have you ever asked yourself that question? When I was growing up as a leader in my youth group, for whatever reason, uh, I would have new believers, primarily the males, especially if they were coming from like uh, an athletic background. They would come to me and they say, hey, I'm saved. Everybody's telling me to read the Bible. Where do I go? Well, I had never read the Bible in its entirety. So I gave them the only advice that made sense to me and that fit my OCD tendencies. Start from the beginning. Go to Genesis and read cover to cover. Now, I've done that and I've come to love and appreciate Genesis and Exodus. Then you get into Leviticus and you get into Numbers. And if you are able to struggle through that, then you get to Deuteronomy, which by definition is the second telling of the law. So it's something that you've already struggled through. Not to say that we shouldn't read it. But that is, if you're going to teach a new believer spiritual discipline, the spiritual discipline of studying Scripture and reading the Bible, that's difficult. Maybe I'm not spiritual enough, but those are hard for me to read. So I went to my youth pastor and Sunday school teachers and some other men that were influential in my life. Like, hey, all these people keep asking me, where do I start reading the Bible? Well, their response was a little bit more spiritual than mine. They said, tell them to read John. That makes sense. Go read John. It's a gospel. And he uses simple language. It's it's easy to understand. And then you start reading John. And I read it with Morgan Freeman's voice for whatever reason in the back of my head. Scripture as I'm reading, I, I, I picture him reading this. In the beginning... Was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Doesn't that seem so abstract? I mean, what does this mean? He could have called him Jesus, he could have called him the Son, but he calls him the Word. When you find out what the Word meant to the original audience, it's really fascinating. I mean, this old fisherman turned disciple uses this description of Jesus and captures his entire audience with one word. The Greek word here is Lagos. That word had multiple meanings to both sides of his audience. For the Greek Gentiles, the Lagos was a form of a mystical, spiritual being that put the whole universe into order. It was very philosophical for them. And the way they described it was the word, logos. It traced back to a 6th century B.C. philosopher who determined that there was a logos similar to the reasoning power of man that was at work in the cosmic order. Later on in the 4th to 3rd centuries, the Greek and Roman Stoic philosophers defined it as this, an active, rational, and spiritual principle that permeated all reality. They called it providence, nature, God, and the soul of the universe. So when John says, in the beginning was the logos, that Greek audience, that's what they're thinking. Keep that in mind when he gets down to verse 14 and says, and that logos took on flesh. To the Jewish audience, the word of the Lord meant something altogether different. Throughout what we call the Old Testament, we see the word of God as the source of divine wisdom, divine revelation. In Genesis 15:1, as God is establishing His covenant with Abram, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Or you can turn to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, you will find, Thus says the Lord, 155 times. You will find, The word of the Lord came in an additional 23, and then you will see references to passages as the declarations of the Lord another 167 times the Jewish audience was well aware of what the Word, the Logos, was. It was to to the Jewish audience, Logos was the way in which God had communicated His characteristics, His attributes, His divine plan, His commands. The Word of the, the Lord was how He revealed Himself. And so what John does at the beginning of his Gospel, when he says... In the beginning was the words. He takes everyone and pulls them in and he says, Hey, Greek philosophers, you want to know what's holding all of this together? You want to know what this cosmic force is? Here he is, Jesus Christ. He's in the flesh. To the Jewish audience, he's like, Hey, the word of the Lord that has been revealed to you throughout history. The final revelation is here. The ultimate revelation of everything that God has communicated beforehand to you. Here he is in the flesh. Jesus Christ. I just love that. In Hebrews 1 1 through 3, the author says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by His Son, through whom, or whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And John says, this word preexisted all things from the beginning. He is eternal. He simply was. Simple words. That's profound truth. Continuing in verse 1, John goes on to say that not only did the word exist prior to the beginning, but the word coexisted with God prior to the beginning. John says, and the word was with God. The Greek phrase here is proston theon, and it communicates something much greater than just being in the presence, the son being in the presence of the father. He's, a, he's attempting to communicate in the, the best way possible, in man's language, the intimacy that was shared between father and son eternally. The image that's presented here is they were face to face. They were in perfect unity, perfect harmony, perfect agree- agreement. Now, that truth comes, makes, comes much more profound later on when you read John chapter 17 and Jesus is praying to his father in verse 5. And he says, And now, Father, glorify, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. By the time you get to John 17, Jesus longs to return to that glory with which he shared with the Father, that face-to-face, he was with him. This phrase, and the word was with God, also communicates that the Son is distinct from the Father. The Son was not God the Father. He was with God. This flies in the face of some um, heresies that have come up throughout the history of the church. See, we're getting into the the doctrine of the Trinity, which is an essential belief, but I'm not going to go into the nuts and bolts this week. That'll come later. But this right here, you can clearly see, and when you go into the next clause and it says he was God, that you have both three persons. You have different persons. They retain their separate personhood yet they're one essence. This goes against the the modalist view where God manifests Himself at different times and at different ways so that when the Son exists, the Father is not there and the Spirit is not there, but the Son is who God has chosen to show Himself as at that moment or right here, this flies in the face of that, that the Word was with God, two separate persons. This is mysterious, indeed. But when I say it's mysterious, I don't mean that we can't understand it, but I do say that we can't fully comprehend it. We have enough evidence in Scripture to support this, You go to Jesus' baptism and you'll have all three persons of the Trinity present. Jesus, the Son, is being baptized. The Spirit descends like a dove and the Father speaks. They're distinct. But notice here the Word was with God and then right after that, the Word was God. This is the climax of verse 1. This is it. He was God. John writes his gospel so that you may believe this truth, that he was God. He makes his point very clear. Four simple words. The word was God, and that is just infinite, profound truth that has baffled the minds of people throughout history. Not only is he God, but he was God. (laughs) Jesus Christ is God. He, He wasn't a man that at his baptism became God. Rather, he was God that became a man. He wasn't just a great man who was a prophet and had a lot of influence over people, he was God. He isn't just one of many other gods. He is the embodiment of all the divine nature and characteristics of the one true God. John makes it abundantly clear here. Four simple words The Word was God. All that God is, Christ is. John was passionate about this. The deity of Christ was something that he held high. And he wanted everyone that would read this to not have to go through that same struggle of trying to figure that out. He knew Jesus was a man. And that wasn't questioned by him. I mean, he walked with this guy. He ate with him. He had conversations with him. But what he came to know is that this man was God that had come in the flesh. He was so passionate about this that he said things like this in 2 John 7-10, through addressing some believers. He said, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. John says that if a professing believer comes to you and says that Jesus was not God, have nothing to do with them. He actually says, send them on their way without even saying good day to them. That's harsh, right? That's strong words. Have nothing to do with them. Don't even greet them. The Antichrist? It flies in the face of our culture of tolerance, doesn't it? John didn't tolerate it, he didn't tolerate it from believers. People within the church. Jesus Christ is God, and I have come to know that to be true. I have seen it. I believe it. And it is essential for you to believe that. He goes on to repeat his statement declaring the coexistence with God face to face in the beginning in verse 2. As he goes into verse 3, and then he clarifies that Christ is indeed eternal and was not created. He says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. To fully support this, this communi- his goal of communicating the uh, uh, deity of Christ, now he points not from his existence, but let's look at his works too. Creation. See, the son wasn't just there in the beginning, but he was an active participant In the creation of all things. Here, John makes a positive statement and a negative statement. Positive statement all things were created through him. Negative statement without him was not anything made that was made. And when he does that, he is able to communicate that Christ was the creator and that he existed eternally. And he does not leave room for someone to come in and say, but he was created also. Let me give you the scenario. In the beginning, Christ created all things. OK, well, maybe he did, but he's also the firstborn of creation, right? So he was the first created being, and then through him everything else was created. Colossians 1:15. Well, first of all, Colossians 1:15 is talking about the preeminence of Christ, about his superiority over all created things, not the order of creation. But secondly, what we see here in John 1:3, that there was not a thing that was created that was not created by him. So you have this category, right? Everything that was created is in this hand. Well, everything that was created, nothing was created without him. Well, he couldn't have been created. He has existed eternally. He is not a created being the son existed he was in the beginning John MacArthur says in the beginning of beginnings before beginnings began from the beginning before we even knew there was a beginning the word Jesus Christ the son existed he was he leaves no room for someone to say that he was a created being Once again, another heresy that came up in church history. Go to John's Gospel. You can't argue against the authority of Scripture. This guy Arius, he tried. He was influenced by some before him, but Jesus Christ was not not created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So church, this is your Christ. He is the eternal creator God. He is the Word, the ultimate revelation of God. He is the tangible radiance of God's glory the exact imprint of God in the flesh. Sometimes the application of Scripture is just to rest in truth. You know, I know we have, we have a lot of doers in our church body, and I love that, and I encourage you to take action, but I, I want you to take action as you're resting and knowing who the Christ is that you're serving. Our goal Is for you to see Christ and fall in love with Him. And then out of that, your good works flow in service and in obedience to Him. Sometimes the application of Scripture is to respond in praise, in awe, in worship, in prayer... And then sometimes we're asked the question, this is who Christ is. This is who the Christ of the Bible is. His eternal being. What are you going to do with that? How do you respond to that? This morning, let's respond with praise and in prayer.